This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. There is a Canadian folk song about men on a whaling ship in Frobisher Bay in the far northern reaches of eastern Canada in a territory known as Nunavut in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. The man singing laments that the ship's captain encouraged the men to pursue one more whale before giving up for the season. But the men know that winter is coming. Before long, the ice closes around the ship, leaving them frozen in Frobisher Bay. When I was a girl, my grandparents used to take me to see the Canadian folk band that wrote this song. They were called Tamarack. And it was always my favorite song that they performed. The history nerd in me loved it, but I also found it kind of terrifying, not in a ghosts or goblins sort of way, but in a very realistic way. We listened to them perform on an island in southern Ontario, surrounded by the St. Lawrence River. As I looked around at the many pine trees, the imposing rock formations of the Thousand Islands, and the powerful deep river, I imagined how very horrifying it would be to be trapped on a ship frozen in the ice hundreds and hundreds of miles from the nearest village. There was something very panic-inducing about the idea of being stuck there while the rations ran out and the frost gathered on the windows. What would become of you? Today, we're talking about a very different kind of scary story, one that was real. It didn't involve anything supernatural, no ghosts, no vampires, no haunted houses. Instead, just the bone-chilling fear that comes from knowing that all hope is gone and your death whether from the cold or from a slow-moving disease or from starvation, is only a matter of time. We're talking about the quest to explore the Arctic. I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We were inspired to put together this episode partly because of the recent AMC series, The Terror, which puts a horror spin on the doomed Franklin expedition, which we're actually going to talk about a little bit later in this episode. Now, when I first saw the ads for that series, which I'll admit I have not actually seen yet because I don't have cable and it's on AMC, so I'm, I'm awaiting its arrival on Netflix or Hulu, um, I was immediately intrigued and I was very freaked out. I am endlessly fascinated and also terrified by stories that pit human beings against their natural environment, especially when it comes to cold weather. What can I say? I am a child of the North. And as I mentioned in our Great Lakes episode, 
I'm always awed by those moments when the earth demonstrates our smallness and powerlessness. So even before the terror, I've been equally freaked out and fascinated by stories about Arctic exploration. But the fact is, Arctic exploration was perilous and rarely had good results. As you'll soon see in the many sad and scary stories we'll tell today. Europeans long hoped that Arctic exploration would result in the discovery of a Northwest Passage, or essentially a shortcut that might bring Europeans to Asia with as many spices and trade goods faster. There are some very old stories about the search for a Northwest Passage. For instance, there are records of a Greek astronomer, Pythias, who sailed from the Mediterranean all the way to the British Isles in the 4th century BCE. Apparently, Pythias was quite the explorer and traveled all around the British Isles. He was the first person to describe the midnight sun or the places on Earth where the sun does not set during certain months of the year. He's also the first person recorded to have seen polar ice flows and an Arctic region in general. Now, we don't actually know anything from Pythias himself. Although contemporary Greeks knew him and the story of his explorations quite well, apparently all of his own writings had been lost. Instead, we have descriptions of his voyages recorded secondhand, so everything's a bit sketchy. For instance, one of Pythias's chroniclers recorded that, quote, Pythias asserts that he explored in person the whole northern region of Europe as far as the ends of the world, end quote. <laughs> he now, made it all the way to the end right, of the world. exactly. Very, very descriptive. Now, what exactly that means, he doesn't say. After all, what seemed like the end of the world to the Greeks sure doesn't seem like the end of the world to us. But Pythias appears to have traveled further north than any other Mediterranean person, informing other Greek thinkers like Ptolemy, Aristophanes, and others about the geography of Europe. He also described something that became called the Thule of Pythias. Nobody knows what this actually was, but the best guesses are that he either landed on, saw, or otherwise learned about either Iceland, the Shetland Islands, or Norway. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, you know, whatever Pythias saw, we actually have absolutely no idea. There are lots of different theories. Either way, the term Thule remained in use, and for centuries, the people of the eastern Canadian Arctic were referred to as Thule Eskimos. And then they started making bike racks. Yes, they did. Many hundreds of years later are the stories of St. Brendan the Navigator, an Irish monastic saint described in a manuscript called Navigatio Sancti Brendani Abatis, or the Voyages of St. Brendan the Abbot. It's not totally clear whether these stories are factually accurate. Probably not, since they're clearly intended to be some kind of Christian pilgrimage narrative. Right. But it is at least based on the real explorations of Irish monks, who often traveled about in little canoes and boats. It's called coracles and carass, made of animal hides. Brendan, however, is supposed to have traveled as far as Iceland, where his chroniclers say that he saw icebergs. Woo! Woo! Exciting! In the Navigatio, they describe what is generally assumed to be an iceberg. And here's how they describe it. Quote, When they drew near to it, St. Brendan looked toward its summit, but could not see it because of its great height, which seemed to pierce the skies. It was covered over with a rare canopy, the material of which they knew not, but it had the color of silver and was hard as marble, while the column itself was of the clearest crystal. End quote. 
Brandon's exploration of the Arctic are lovely, but they don't actually tell us much about where he might have gone or what he might have discovered, since they're mostly focused on the wonders of God's creation rather than on true exploration. There are other Arctic voyages we actually know a little bit more about. The Norse, for instance, did a great deal of Arctic exploration. Bjarni Herjolfsson is believed to be the first European to see North America in the year 986 while trying to find Greenland from Iceland. He was blown off course and saw some land with lots of trees on it that was not Greenland. And yes, that is literally the entire story. He saw some land with trees on it that was not Greenland. That's the whole thing. Not long after that, Leif Erikson sailed down the same stretch of what is now Canada, which he named things like Helluland, Forestland, and Wineland. Historians guess that this was likely Baffin Island, the Labrador coast, although we're not totally sure where Wineland was. But Didn't they call it Vinland? Or yes, something? but it translated to Wineland. Okay. So the, the historian that I was reading like gave the... Um, the Norse spelling for it, and then called it, referred to it right, as Right, but Wineland. they would have pronounced it Vinland. Vinland, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, either way, I want to go to Wineland. <laughs> Me too. For a long time, Erikson's exploration of the region was understood as most likely mere legend. But actually, starting in the 1960s, archaeological research uncovered no shortage of evidence of Norse settlement in this area of Canada. Right, so they was there. Yeah. Um, All these ancient voyages added evidence over the course of centuries to theories that there was a passage through this region to Asia. During the so-called Age of Discovery, pressure mounted for European nations to establish empires and be the first to blaze new trade routes. When Ferdinand Magellan found a route around the tip of South America to the Pacific Ocean for the Spanish, other European nations rushed to find their own shortcuts. Not that that route was actually short at all, because right, exactly. it was very it was, long and really hard to do, because yeah. you're going against currents. Extremely and arduous, but um, they were still very proud of themselves. Yeah, right. So France sent Giovanni Verrazzano, um, who sailed along the coastline of what is now the eastern seaboard of the United States, from South Carolina to Maine, trying in vain to find a break in the shore that indicated a route through the continent. So a a water route route to the continent, yeah. A few years later, Jacques Cartier managed to do a bit better by finding his way into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and then later the St. Lawrence River itself, following the river in all the way to what would now be Quebec, just north of the New York-Vermont border. Cartier was comparatively very successful. He claimed a new land for France, Canada, and established a French presence in a Haudenosaunee village that is now Quebec City. He was also completely convinced that the St. Lawrence continued on through the entire continent, even though he was thwarted in advancing any further inland by the rocks and rapids of the river near modern-day Montreal. He was so convinced, in fact, that he named the encampment he established at this point and the rapids that surrounded it La Chine for China. There's still a town in that spot called Lachine, Quebec. And he also probably named Canada because he misinterpreted some Iroquois folks who were trying to tell him something about their village. Um, the Iroquois word for village is Kanata. Um, so good going, Jacques. Yeah, that's one thing. Really good translation, boyfriend. <laughs> that's like, I, I tried to poke around in this as much as I could, but that's like one of the explanations that's given on like the official government of Can- Canada's right. website. So I was like, all right, Sounds, that's what we're going with. Sounds right. right to me. So good job, Jacques. What Cartier did not expect was the harsh nature of Canadian winters. 
Montreal is actually further south in terms of latitude than Paris, but nonetheless, weather patterns make North America far colder than Europe, a a fact that really blew my mind. When I was, I mean, I know that. I know that North America is colder than Europe. Everybody does. But when I actually looked at a map that lined up where the cities are in relation to each other, I was like, what? Like, yeah. it, it's totally, totally wild. Right. Um, I'll like try to link t- to something. the tip of Gibraltar or something would yeah. be, like, our latitude. So you'd yeah. think that it would be, like, balmy and nice because that's right. how, you know, Spain is. But, but nope. Nope. Right. Okay. So um, because of weather patterns, North America is colder than Europe. So they really weren't prepared for what they experienced. Cartier's journal records that, quote, from the middle of November until the 15th of April, we lay frozen up in the ice, which was more than two fathoms or 12 feet in thickness, while on shore there was more than four feet of snow, so that it was higher than the bulwarks of the ships. All of our beverages froze in their casks, and the whole river was frozen where the water was fresh. What Cartier described there was what each of the next voyages will discuss encountered, but most of them dismissed the dangers of Canadian winters too. Cartier fared relatively well, although his crew struggled against the ice, against their low rations, and against outbreaks of scurvy during the long winters. Cartier's relative success inspired the English, who were feeling fairly left behind. Robert Thorne, an English merchant, suggested to Henry VIII that the English needed to get in on this empire train, and that since the Portuguese and the Spanish had found their new lands to the south, the English should be different and should seek out new lands to the north. His suggestion actually had some logic, but it didn't have any specific details, and it wasn't actually based on any maps. So he was just kind of like, how about we go north? Well, cartographers hadn't mapped that all out yet. So yeah, and the ones that wouldn't be maps. The maps that they did have were like still based on Pythias. Oh, so they were all like, <laughs> "We're gonna find the Thune of Pythias," or the they one of the w- phrases they use is the Thule of Anion, which was the one that Pythias apparently found, which doesn't exist. Right, right. It wasn't until years later that the English took their first northern venture, headed up by Sir Hugh Willoughby and Richard Chancellor. They left London and sailed west and north, up around Denmark, then over and around Norway. Somewhere north of Finland, the ships the Edward Bonaventura, sailed by Chancellor, and the Bona Esperanza, and the Bona Confidencia. Um, I don't. Why do they all have super like Italian names or I Spanish names? I really don't know. Um, so anyway, these ships, uh, which were directed, the, the last two were directed by Willoughby, right. um, were separated in a storm. Chancellor landed in Arkhangelsk on the northern uh, Divina River, where it meets the White Sea in Russia. From there, Chancellor took his men and walked overland to Moscow, where he conducted some business with Ivan IV. Which, can I just say, that's a long-ass walk. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it either. Okay. Well, they must have had slaves or something, right? Oh my gosh, maybe that's where we get Santa from. Probably, right? <laughs> it was a joke. When the English walked into Moscow, they're like, oh, it's Santa. It's St. Nicholas. Um, no. So anyway, Willoughby, <laughs> Willoughby, on the other hand, did not fare so well. Willoughby's ships were not sighted again until Russian fishermen found the two ships in the spring of 1555, almost a year after they were last sighted. All the men were on board, but they were dead. Willoughby's journal was found on board. He'd scribbled in the margins that in January 1554, they were stranded in the Haven of Death. Most assumed that the crew had simply frozen to death, but later reports made that seem less likely. A description of the corpses gives us an idea as to why. There were 
quote, strange things about the mode in which they were frozen, having found some of them seated in the act of writing, pen still in hand, and the paper before them, others at table, platters in hand and spoon in mouth, others opening a locker, and others in various postures like statues, as if they had been adjusted and placed in these attitudes, end quote. The Bona Esperanza and Bona Confidentia had become literal ghost ships, floating around with the frozen corpses of their crew. Now, no one knows exactly what happened to the crews of Willoughby's ships. It seems easy to say that they froze to death, but if that report is to be believed, the men all froze to death while in the midst of activity, which isn't how freezing to death works. But there's one theory that is really surprising, but actually seems very likely, carbon monoxide poisoning. Willoughby made the wise decision, according to his journal, to stop and overwinter in Russian waters. It makes a lot of sense that the men sealed up the chinks in the ship's hulls and closed up the hatches and portholes. Then they burned the fuel that they had brought with them, which was, for the first time, sea coal rather than wood. The resulting fumes silently killed the entire crew while they went about their business, leaving eerie, lifelike corpses. But still, wouldn't you, like, kind of not feel good? And as you're, like, putting a book away, wouldn't you be like, I don't feel great? And then you'd sit down and then you'd die? Instead of, like, dying and, like... Instead of dying and staying like this? (laughs) (laughs) Because then they would have to freeze to death in that position. Do you know what I mean? Like, you'd have to be dead... And then sit there long right, enough that you would freeze it up. So I'm, but I'm saying I yeah. agree with you because like it would take a long time. Most people don't die and then just continue to stand there for five hours while they freeze to death. Wait, they're already <laughs> dead, so they're not freezing to death. You mean so while they freeze? While they're freezing yeah. solid. No, let's keep in mind that whoever wrote this, first of all, whoever wrote this, I don't think actually saw them. I think oh, that okay. it was like a someone was it was some some ambassador or something was like reporting back reports that he had heard uh-huh. about the the okay. the ship. Plus, it's 1555, and people aren't all they that exaggerate. smart. <laughs> people exaggerate the hell out of stuff yeah. in 1555. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. Okay. Who knows? But either way. So, grain of salt. It's one of the th- one of the theories now is that they didn't actually freeze to death. They died of carbon monoxide poisoning. So, if their bodies were in strange positions, that would make a certain amount of sense. Where if you'd think if they were freezing to death, they'd all be huddled in their beds, mm-hmm. you know, right. laying down. Or if, but like if a, they were all like passed out in chairs. I mean, I would think if like the the temperature suddenly dropped, like very suddenly, like they entered some type of storm system that made the temperature mm-hmm. drop really fast. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, we flash freeze vegetables and fruits now. It could be like that. Maybe they were flash, flash frozen. frozen human. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Uh, I don't know. I'm just saying. It sounds more likely to me than I than know. carbon monoxide. Yeah, don't we know that when people die from carbon monoxide, they like turn blue or something or red? They do usually something. have like a flush, don't they? Don't yeah, they turn something, red? Yeah. After the disaster that was the Willoughby expedition, the English debated whether it was worthwhile to continue their search for a faster passage to China or new northern territories. Elizabeth I was petitioned by competing factions, some who wanted to abandon Arctic exploration and instead try to find a southern route to Asia, and some who wanted to continue trying to find a northern one, but by going in the opposite direction. Instead of going east like Willoughby through Scandinavia and into Russia, these men advocated going west toward Canada, encouraged by the precedent set by Cartier. Although the advocates for the southern route argued 
correctly. The Arctic posed unique problems because it, you know, freezes over for the better part of the year. Elizabeth was persuaded nonetheless by the Northwest folks. After all, sailing to the north would avoid an even larger obstacle than ice, the Spanish, who dominated the southern seas. To lead this new mission, the Crown chose Martin Frobisher, who had been petitioning for permission to take such a trip and had done a great deal of fundraising to make it happen. He even married a wealthy widow and essentially took all her money to fund the voyage. Great guy! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then he never saw her again and she died in a poorhouse. Yeah, really. Oh my God, that's really nice guy. Yeah, isn't that terrible? What a jerk. Frobisher set off in 1576. He had great success. He successfully navigated around what he named the Frobisher Straits and Frobisher Bay at the tip of Baffin's Island. Isn't it funny how they are all so um, humble? Right. I know. I'm naming this Frobisher Bay. I'm right. naming this the Frobisher Straits. I'm naming that rock the Frobisher Rock. Right. right. Like, well, it's exactly like when people, when if like I had a lot of friends who lived in new builds as young kids at, in Wheatfield, like a, there's lots yes. of new builds, mm-hmm. and their streets are like Joanne Street. Yeah, Tiffany and you can Way. Tell, yeah. yeah, you can mm-hmm. tell that like just some person was like, I'm going to name this after my wife or exactly. whatever. Right. It's like, really? I don't know. It's, it's weird. I think yeah. it's weird. I think it's weird, too. <laughs> It's not like you're not naming it after a president or someone who had some was amazing invention. Important. Yeah. Just some Joanne, you know. <laughs> like it's that's the like that's, Michaela that's Street. That's the yeah. street that Phil grew up on, my friend Phil. Really? Joanne? Joanne Court. Joanne Court. I oh I know, it's horrible. Weird. Anyway, in all, Frobisher took three voyages. The last in 1578 was the largest and the most tortured. The ships were constantly plagued by ice, meaning that the crew had to work around the clock to keep breaking up and pushing chunks of ice away to protect the hulls. The poor mariners, wrote one of the voyage's captains, having poles, pikes, pieces of timber, and oars in hands, stood almost all day and night without any rest, bearing off the force and breaking the sway of the ice with such incredible pain and peril that it was wonderful to behold. And, of course, they're using the old-fashioned you know, meaning of the word wonderful. Not like, it was so great. It was great. Yeah. Um, Meaning it was like a wonder. He couldn't, yeah, he couldn't believe that he was seeing that. Right. The men were tired and stressed. One of the ships, the Dennis... Sorry. I know, it's funny. (laughs) The Dennis! Dennis. I don't know, just... One of the ships, the Dennis, sank. Other ships became separated and stranded. Frobisher spent precious time trying to venture into the larger and more dangerous Hudson Strait, only to finally turn around and enter the safer but ultimately dead-end Frobisher Strait. Even in the middle of the summer, one of the captains wrote that, quote, There fell so much snow and with such bitter cold air that we were that we could scarce see one another for the same, nor open our eyes to handle our ropes and sails, the snow being above half a foot deep upon the hatches of our ship, which did so wet through our poor mariner's clothes that he had five or six shift of apparel, had scarce one dry thread on his back. Sailors worked with frozen ropes, which cut into their hands, and their clothes froze solid on their backs. Things were not going well, which did not bode well for a quick and easy Northwest Passage. That's one of the things that kills me about this, is they're like, oh, we're going to find this, like, easy shortcut. Right. Like, And, why like, even if they found that? one, it would not be quick or easy. They're, you know, it, they're being given plenty of evidence that this is not a, a great plan. Um, ultimately, the sailors failed to do much of anything new on this voyage, except for the fact that they found great quantities of what they believed to be ore containing precious metals mined from Baffin Island. Like many of the other things associated with these voyages, this was also a bust. 
The ore was worthless and was used to repair roads and build stone walls around farms in Dartford, England. So definitely, definitely worth it. I mean, that's kind of cool now. Perilous trip. That's kind of, I want to, you know, if you like lived in Dartford, England now, that's kind of cool. It is kind of cool, but it's not, maybe not totally worth going all the way to Canada to get ore to put into the roads in Dartford. Right, probably not. There are other voyages that take place during this period, but we're going to skip ahead to another doomed voyage, the voyage of Henry Hudson. Hudson was an experienced seaman and explorer who'd already been on a couple of Arctic voyages in the early 1600s. In September 1608, for instance, Hudson sailed into New York Bay and discovered a significant waterway that he hoped was a passage to the Pacific Ocean. He was wrong, (laughs) (laughs) but he had unwittingly been the first European to sail the Hudson River. That voyage had been funded by the Dutch, who were in the process of colonizing New Netherlands. But Hudson himself was English, and the Crown wanted him to do his discovering on their behalf. In April 1610, Hudson took another voyage, funded by English merchants, to seek a passage through the Canadian Arctic in a ship called the Discovery. There were 22 men on board, mostly hired at the last minute and without a great deal of care, and from the beginning, discipline was a problem. Most of the men were experienced sailors, but weren't necessarily aware of the perils of this particular voyage. Hudson did find a new possibility, the passage we now call the Hudson Strait. But by the time they explored the mouth of the strait, they were already hitting dangerous ice. After a lot of debate, Hudson decided to press on despite the risk, and the discovery navigated the strait into another enormous open body of water, what we now call Hudson Bay. This was extremely encouraging to Hudson and gave him confidence that he'd finally found the key to navigating around Canada to the north to reach the Pacific. Hudson was so confident, in fact, that he refused to listen to the advice of his navigator, Abacook Prickett. Isn't that such a magnificent English name? Abacook Abacook Prickett, who insisted that the ship find a place to make landfall for the winter. This proved to be a very, very bad decision. They were already fighting the ice in the early summer, so by early November, the Discovery was frozen solid in the ice, unable to move. Thus far, no Arctic expedition had ever attempted to overwinter on their voyage, almost always choosing to turn back before they were trapped in the ice. Hudson failed to make that same choice. This was, of course, dangerous because of the bitter cold and the fierce weather, but it was made more so because Hudson had only accounted for a voyage of six months meaning they didn't have enough rations. The situation on the Discovery was already tense, and the cold and the short rations... Rations? The cold and the short rations only made it worse. Because of the ice, the men were able to leave the ship to hunt when weather allowed, but at other times, rations ran so short that they resorted to eating moss and frogs. Now, I'm going to pause to say, I have no idea where they were getting either moss or frogs if it was frozen over. But they were the, near land, right? Yes, but it was frozen. Everything was frozen. So the well, where do the frogs go when uh, stuff freezes? Under the ice. So maybe they're maybe they're ice fishing. Fishing. The yeah. the source I had didn't say. It just said they were eating moss and frogs. Um, soon, you know, unsurprisingly, the crew had scurvy. According to Abacook Prickett, whose diary is really our main source of the situation on the Discovery. Uh, The men suspected that Hudson was hoarding food, which started to breed bitterness and distrust. 
Hudson made things worse by arguing and fighting with his crew, even those who had remained sympathetic to him. For example, Hudson attacked the ship's carpenter, who had often defended Hudson against the other men. Prickett wrote that Hudson, quote, ferreted him out of his cabin and struck him, calling him by many foul words and threatened to hang him. Ferreted him. I'm going <laughs> to ferret you out of there. I love that. I'm going to use that for no one. It's my new verb. I'm going to ferret things around. <laughs> <laughs> the ice finally broke up and allowed the discovery to get underway in mid-June 1611, which meant that if they were to do any more exploring, they would only have a mere matter of months before getting trapped again. Even when the ice broke, huge chunks made travel slow and arduous. It was soon clear that Hudson was not planning to return to England as the men hoped, but rather was committed to continuing onward in search of the Northwest Passage. Within a week, they had only traveled about 12 miles. That was Ouch. the last straw. I mean, I could, like, run that long in a day. Like, I don't, it's just right. like, that's not very far. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the last straw. So on June 23rd, three of the crew members broke into Hudson's cabin, seized the captain, and bound his arms behind him. They placed the captain on a small sailboat and then forced at knife point all of the sick, disabled, or weakened men and Hudson's son on the boat. Prickett's journal states that the mutineers provided the men on the sailboat with some supplies, clothes, powder, and shot, pikes, a pot, and some food. Then they cut the boat loose, set their sails, and took off, abandoning Hudson to his fate. No one ever saw the men alive again. As they were forced into the tiny vessel, Hudson and his refugee crew must have known that they would die. It would be impossible to sail home, and there'd be no rescue vessel in the far reaches of Arctic Canada. And plus, those people were already disabled and sick and dying. Right. That's awful. Yeah, it's, it's really... Ter- I mean, it's terrible. Mutiny is, you know, always bad. But, like, they just took it up a notch by, like, basically kicking all of what they considered the dead weight off of the ship and putting them onto this small right. vessel that they knew when they did that they were killing them. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, they they probably would have been better to just kill them rather than... Right. Like, less... L- let it... Less suffering. Yeah, yeah. Part. Yeah. That's really scary to me. But the mutineers didn't fare that well either. Within a few weeks of jettisoning Hudson, several of the crew members of the Discovery went ashore to hunt. As their dinghy reached the shore, they were greeted by a group of Inuit. Abacuck Prickett was watching this landing from the rowboat. Suddenly, an Inuit man attacked Prickett just as he saw that the shore party were being attacked by their the, the Inuits that greeted them. Like an Inuit person just kind of like jumps onto this little ship and he's like, ah! Uh, According to Prickett's journal, he says this, Whilst I was thus assaulted in the boat, our men were set upon on the shore. John Thomas and William Wilson had their bowels cut, and Michael Purse and Henry Green, being mortally wounded, came tumbling into the boat together. The wounded men frantically rowed back to the ship, but by the time they reached the discovery, Green, one of the original mutineers, was already dead. By the next day, three more men had died. This left just one inexperienced crew member to take over navigating the ship all the way home. He actually did a pretty good job, but his proficiency didn't help solve the same old problem, which was food. As they waited out the months of passage across the cold Atlantic, they resorted to chewing on chicken bones cooked in candle wax. Most of the crew, including all of the leaders of the mutiny, died before they ever saw England again. 
Finally, the ship managed to make it to Southern Ireland. Though mutiny is a serious crime, none of the survivors were charged. Instead, they eventually were charged with murder, but those charges were dropped. What's so baffling and scary about the Hudson Mutiny is that comparatively speaking, and based purely in terms of European discovery, Hudson was quite successful. It didn't matter, though. The weather, the climate, and the realities of an Arctic voyage made any success irrelevant. Another later expedition also found this out the hard way. In the early 18th century, James Knight, an explorer who worked for the Hudson Bay Company, struck out on yet another attempt to explore the Canadian Arctic. Knight also wanted to find a Northwest Passage, especially after preliminary maps from Hudson's voyage left the western half of Hudson Bay open and full of possibilities. But he was also influenced by many rumors about gold, copper, and other treasures in the frozen expanses of northern Canada, and by the possibility of establishing a fur trade with the indigenous people. Unsurprisingly, it was hard for Knight to convince anyone to fund a trip. Yeah, the previous ones hadn't yeah. been a good return Not on Not going well. Yeah. <laughs> So finally, Net, uh, but he was apparently able to, finally, Knight set sail in 1719 with two ships, the Albany and the Discovery. So recall that that was the name of Hudson's ill-fated ship. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird yeah. that they would reuse? Like, why? Yeah. And and we'll see that happens again. It's just like, You'd know. think that you'd, that that would, especially because tempting sailors. tempting fate is what it is. Because sailors are so <laughs> superstitious. Right. Wouldn't you think that that would be like a no-go, but. You would think. Um, Knight's navigation plan, based on his instruction to the navigator of the second ship, were to endeavor to find out the Straits of Anion, which that would have been the Thule of the Thule of yes. Anion. Mm-hmm. That was like what exactly. um, Pythias was talking exactly. about. Exactly. That might sound relatively straightforward. Just go to that strait. But the problem was the Strait of Anion was sort of imaginary. It was used as another name for the Northwest Passage, one that had been used since the time of Pythias. Basically, Knight's instructions were, find the Northwest Passage. <laughs> you know, not very helpful. Yeah, not very like, helpful. Nobody yeah. else was able to do that yet. Right. Like, hey, guy, like, here's like, your driving instructions. Right. Just find where you're going. Right. <laughs> Just find the portal or whatever. Like, it just it doesn't make sense. Um, the ships left the Thames in June 1719, laden with empty chests they confidently believed they would fill with the mineral riches of Canada. No one ever saw the ships or their crews ever again. For the next several months, other English merchants heard reports of Knight's Expedition's movements. But in 1621... A merchant cryptically reported to England that he had traveled north, quote, to where the Albany and sloop was lost. Wait, to where the Albany sloop was lost, we seeing things belonging to those vessels. But for some reason, this merchant did nothing to investigate further or to search for any survivors. The next year, another ship noted the mast of a ship sticking out of the icy sea near a forbidding marble white island, and later noted that they had found an Inuit camp full of what appeared to be pieces of a ship. Forty or so years later, two Hudson Bay Company ships happened upon the same marble white island, and that's how they refer to it, is the marble white island, and eventually they name it the the marble island. Um, They... Happened upon that same island, and they could tell that the shore showed evidence of an encampment. They went ashore and discovered what was later identified as unmistakable evidence of Knight's ships. A year or so later, another voyage spotted the massive remains of the ships sunken in some 30 feet of water. 
No one knows exactly what happened to those ships or how they came to the shore of that island, but local Inuit were able to describe at least some of what had happened to the crew at the end. This comes to us from a merchant who who was able to communicate with these Inuit, and they said this. Two survived many days after the rest and frequently went to the top of an adjacent rock and earnestly looked to the south and east, as if in expectation of some vessels coming to their relief. After continuing there for considerable time together and nothing appearing in sight, they sat down close together and wept bitterly. At length, one of the two died and the other's strength was so far exhausted that he fell down and died also in attempting to dig a grave for his companion. Oh, I know. Isn't that sad to be sitting there on the rock and like looking out, hoping for a ship and then you just die. Right. And then the other person you're with just dies. Dies too. You die. I know, that's awful. Easily the most well-known Arctic expedition was the one led in 1845 by John Franklin. In 1843, Captain John Clark Ross had returned to England from a relatively successful scientific exploration of the region. Can I pause you for a second? So when I was looking at this, you know, looking this up and looking uh-huh. up information about, background information about each of these people, uh-huh. uh, John Clark Ross, good looking man. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a bunch of paintings of him and he's like very, like cloaked in furs. Like a sexy Stalin. Yeah, pretty cute. Um, He hadn't located a Northwest Passage, and it certainly hadn't been an easy voyage. But he'd ventured further and identified more new lands than any previous expedition. What this meant was that Ross's ships, the Erebus and the Terror, were available for use. Both ships were what were called uh, bomb vessels, a nickname that came from the fact that the hulls were extremely thick. So, so thick they might withstand mortars in battle. This also meant that the hulls were better able to travel through icy water, so they might kind of cut through them. Exactly. Yeah. Ross's relative success made the English Admiralty even more convinced to press on in its search for the passage. Sir John Barrow, the second secretary of the Admiralty, assured Lord Haddington, the first lord of the Admiralty. (laughs) These are all very British words. I I know. Um, There would not be, quote, any apprehension of the loss of ships or men, end quote, and somehow argued with a straight face that the straits he wanted a new voyage to explore did not freeze over. Moreover, another voyage could conduct important scientific investigations and protect British honor from the possibility that the Russians might discover a passage first. Oh, no. These arguments must have worked because preparations for another expedition under the direction of 59-year-old naval officer Captain John Franklin began within a matter of months. The Terror and the Erebus were well outfitted with large crews, the already strong hulls further reinforced, three years' worth of rations, hundreds of books, and even the new technology of small engines. One historian says that it was the most lavishly equipped Arctic expedition to date— it seemed certain it would be a success. Franklin himself was a little less confident. He was under tremendous pressure from Sir Barrow, but he did not feel that Barrow's belief that the strait he was sent to explore would be easily passable. This uneasy feeling proved correct. The ships were seen by another vessel sailing into Baffin Bay in July 1845 and were never seen again. Initially, the Admiralty was not actually all that worried. After all, on an Arctic voyage, it was not surprising that you wouldn't hear from the expedition for long stretches of time. It's not like they have email, right? Starting in 1847, though, Jane Franklin, the captain's wife, began to agitate for a rescue expedition. 
Over the next few years, several missions tried and failed to find Franklin and his men. This is wild because they send kind of expedition after expedition after. I mean, there's tons of people year after year after year trying to find these guys. One reason the missions were so unsuccessful was actually a quirk of the weather. In 1846, when Franklin had traveled, the ice was unusually low, allowing Franklin to travel into and then beyond Baffin Bay in the belief that he had found the long-sought passage. In 1848-49, when James Ross came to find him, that same James Clark Ross, Uh, The ice was heavier. It actually had gone sort of back to normal. So Ross's men were convinced that Franklin could not have gone further because the waterway was frozen solid, when in fact that's exactly what they had done, is, is traveled further. Finding nothing, Ross gave up and returned to England. In 1850, Lady Franklin herself financed another expedition to go in search of her husband. In late August 1850, an American expedition, sailing at the urging of Lady Franklin, found the first evidence of the doomed ships, graves. On a snowy island, the Americans found several grave markers. One, for a man named John Torrington, stated that the man had died, quote, 1st January 1846 on board the HM ship Terror. But Franklin had taken over 100 men, so these few graves couldn't be enough for the whole crew. Other ships found other clues, such as scraps of paper, soup cans, clothes, and sled tracks that indicated that Franklin's crew had been present, but no trace of the men or where they had gone. Back in England, most people still assume that Franklin was alive and waiting out the weather somewhere in the Great Northwest Passage. Franklin was even promoted to Rear Admiral in 1852, seven years after he had last been seen. Which is crazy. Right. I don't get it. In 1854, Scottish explorer John Ray met a group of Inuit hunters while on a voyage funded by the Hudson Bay Company. While talking to the hunters, Ray learned that Franklin's ships had frozen in the ice in the fall of 1846. Piecing together what Ray learned with what we've learned since, we now know that the Franklin was trapped there. This was not initially a big deal. Franklin had expected to be frozen in, as he should. All of the previous voyages had. Right. So he'd packed extra food, including canned goods. This surely would have gotten them through the winter. But what he didn't account for was the summer ice. The intense cold of those years meant that the ice never broke up in the summer. They were completely and hopelessly trapped. But the ships were well outfitted, and the heavy hulls must have kept the crew fairly warm and safe. Yet for some reason, we now know that the men of the Erebus and Terror left the safety of the ships and ventured across the expanses of ice in an attempt to reach a fur-trading outpost some 1,000 miles away. They took little food and instead planned to eat fish and birds. It proved to be a very bad decision. We'll find that people in the Arctic, in these Arctic explorations, don't make a lot of very good decisions. Yeah, maybe their brains were frozen. I don't know. Ice fishing would never have fed them adequately. Eventually, it seems they resorted to cannibalism. Bones left along the trail they tracked show clear signs of tool marks and what archaeologists call pot polishing, or the pattern of smoothing that happens when the ends of bones rub against a cooking vessel as they cook. It even appears that some bones were cracked and the marrow sucked out, a sign of what scientists call end-stage cannibalism. 
When men are starving and have eaten all the meat, they resort to sucking the marrow from human bones. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> so we want to tell you about one last ill-fated voyage from a group that we haven't actually mentioned yet, the Americans. Starting after the Civil War, the U.S. Army Signal Corps began to consider its own Arctic exploration, not actually to find the Northwest Passage this time, but instead to conduct scientific studies, especially about the weather. I'm not sure if this episode still exists, um, but a couple years ago, as history buffs, we did an episode about winter storms. Does that still exist? I'm yeah. not sure. Um, either way, but in that episode, I talked about how in the 1870s and 1880s, there was the beginnings of an effort to start better tracking and predicting the weather so that Americans might be better prepared in the event of severe storms, especially devastating blizzards, because there was a series of really intense blizzards um, in the Midwest that killed a lot of people. And so there was a a desire to be able to better predict that kind of weather. Um, This mission was to be led by Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley, a Civil War veteran and soldier through and through. I mean, he's very um, kind of classic military guy. Greeley was tasked, in his own words, with taking, quote, simultaneous observations of all physical phenomena. Unlike previous expeditions, Greeley's expedition was not a naval one, but an army one. So instead of exploring waterways, the 25 men would be dropped off and left there to make their observations. It's just wild. I mean, it just blows my mind. They would then be picked up after a couple of years and returned to the U.S., But let's be real. It wasn't just scientific knowledge that the U.S. Army was after. In addition to those weather observations that they used as sort of their excuse, they were also seeking to secure the achievement of furthest north for the Americans, who had not yet made a name for themselves in exploration outside of the U.S. They really want to stick it to the British because the British hold the, the record for the furthest north at this time. So this is a pissing competition. Yes. Okay. Yep. Men. Am I right? Men. Yes, all men. Hashtag yes, all men. (laughs) (laughs) Many of the men were soldiers, not particularly trained in Arctic exploration. Who is, right? (laughs) Yeah. Who who is at this point? Because they're all dead. Right, that's true. The ones who go there are all dead, so no one's trained in that. Um, Many of them were simply looking for a change of pace from their service in the West during the Indian Wars. To them, this seemed like a piece of cake. Go winter camping for a few years, observe the weather, make a few bucks, come home. For other men, the expedition was a scientific adventure, a way to see glory for themselves and for America. That's not what they got. They built an encampment they named Fort Conger, which became their new home. Right away, the venture was significantly harder than the men expected. The weather the first winter of 1881 was brutal. Their weather notes indicate that it was regularly between negative 44 and negative... 54 degrees. As one historian notes, at those temperatures, your pee actually freezes before it hits the ground. The men were completely isolated. There was nothing but frozen expanse to every direction. Plus, it was dark 24 hours a day. The only thing to do was take the weather observations, upward of 500 observations a day, regardless of how cold or windy or bitter it was outside. 
Naturally, the men started to get frustrated. There was a lot of squabbling, particularly over menial tasks like laundry and cooking. Grilly reacted fiercely, showing that he was not a particularly skilled leader. He lectured the men and warned them that if they continued to be insubordinate, he'd have to start summarily executing them. In Greeley's mind, he probably thought he was establishing his authority, but it ended up losing him the men's respect. Despite all of this, they were still committed to beating the British record for furthest north. In the spring of 1882, when the sun came back, two different groups of men set out to travel north. The first group, led by George Rice, traveled for four weeks, but then were forced to turn back without reaching their goal. The other group, led by David Brainerd, took a different route. And in May 1882, this group was able to travel to 83 degrees, 23 minutes, 8 seconds north, which was four miles further north than the British had traveled. So they claimed... They win! They claimed Damn it. The, new, uh, the new record. Now, um, side note here, they didn't keep it for very long. I think the British out outfoxed them once again, but they were very, very proud of themselves. Uh, Brainerd was thrilled with this achievement. They placed an American flag, and they even carved a rock with the logo of Brainerd's favorite beer, <laughs> which I think is really cute. Sorry, that's such a Brett Kavanaugh thing. It's such, but it, like to it, me, it's just the... to me, it's really funny because you think like they're going through this really horrific, intense experience, and everything is bleak and terrible. Um, but then they have this moment of like real happiness, and they're like. Beer. Joking, yeah, they're like joking. You know, it's it's funny. They were only four hundred and fifty-five miles away from the North Pole, so it's it to me. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable for this group of men in the nineteenth century to get all this way in this horrible weather on foot, right? right. And they're like dressed in you know parkas that are hand sewn out of yeah. like fur. I mean, it's just bizarre. It's really weird. Yeah, this achievement really helped with morale, but that summer things started to get tense again. They were supposed to get a relief ship with fresh supplies and letters from home, but the ship never appeared. The men were extremely demoralized. There are these stories about them going up and climbing up on a hill and sitting and like staring out at the straits and like waiting for this ship to come in only like day after day after day after day to be disappointed. And it's really, really sad. The men didn't know it, but the ship called the Proteus had been crushed in the ice and had been sunk. Even if it had been successful, it still wouldn't have been able to get through the ice that blocked the strait that could have brought it to Fort Conger. So it was just impossible to get men these supplies. This happened twice. Mm. So there's two summers in a row that this ship didn't show up. Did they keep sending one named the Proteus and it yes. kept sinking? <laughs> no, they sent another one called the Proteus. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so Greeley made the fateful decision to abandon Fort Conger. The contingency plan that Greeley had in his orders said that if the ship didn't arrive the second summer, the men were to leave the fort and travel south toward where the ship could meet them, the mouth of the strait where it was blocked with ice. If it still didn't come, they were to leave a group there to keep an eye out for the ships. This was intensely stupid. The fort was warm, well-supplied, and surrounded by game for hunting. The men thought that Greeley had lost his mind, but to Greeley, orders were orders. Now, keep in mind, these orders were written long in advance of the mission and without any boots-on-the-ground understanding of what life in the Arctic was actually like. So, they didn't match up to what was logistically possible. The real experience, right? Yeah. But to Greeley, an old soldier... 
orders are orders are orders. It doesn't matter what the situation is at the moment. He had orders to leave Fort Conger after two summers if they didn't get resupplied. And so he did. Old men. Um, under orders from Greeley, the men locked up Fort Conger, boarded their small ship, and started to sail out toward the neck of the strait where they might be rescued. Making matters worse, Lieutenant Greeley was not handling the stress well. When he wasn't snapping at the men and threatening to kill them for insubordination, he was hiding in his sleeping bag. He came up with sort of irrational plans, including the idea that they abandon their boat and instead take their supplies to get on an ice floe, which would presumably follow the currents to their destination. None of this helped him earn the respect of the men. Things veered dangerously toward what had happened to Henry Hudson's voyage. Mutiny. A plot arose to have the group's doctor declare the lieutenant insane, then declared David Brainerd the leader of the mission. Brainerd refused to participate, so the mutiny fell apart. But then the steamboat became trapped in the ice. With few other choices, they abandoned the boat and went out onto the ice. Unbelievably, they essentially followed Greeley's nutso plan to float around on an ice floe, which also unbelievably worked and brought them to a rocky island. They should have, the, the source that I was using for this literally just said they should have died. Like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> this should not have worked, but it did. Unfortunately for them, the winter was bearing down on them. Back on land, discipline actually improved as Greeley pulled it together and started to become a better leader, partly because they had no other choice and they had to work together or die. Things quickly became dire. They lived together in a tiny hut. The sun disappeared. Temperatures plummeted. They started to run dangerously low on food. Even with careful and disciplined rationing, it was very clear that they were going to run out of food. There was no hunting. The only hope was the possibility of cached food left by previous explorers. George Rice led several trips out from their tiny hut, trying desperately to find anything that they could eat. On their last venture in November 1882, incredibly, they found some meat left behind by a British expedition. But as they tried to make the five days walk back to their encampment, one of the men got frostbite and was unable to go any further. They could only save him if they left behind the meat. Rice made the decision to save their comrade, dragging the suffering man on a sled until they could not go any further. Rice himself walked the last 12 miles to the camp, got a rescue party, and then walked back out to where they had left the sled. Their frostbitten friend wasn't joyous to see them. Instead, in his intense pain, he just cried and begged them to kill him. Later, in their hut, the man's frostbitten extremities started to fall off. First a finger, then a foot. Men started to die. Others started to lose their minds. Everyone knew that the expedition was going to end very, very badly. George Rice wrote in his diary, quote, Ellis tells me of being intimidated of the other inhabitants of his sleeping bag. I don't know. I'm assuming assuming that they were laying together. I know that they were laying together because they only had a certain number of like sleeping bunk type things. And to preserve heat, they kind of were sleeping together. Okay. So Ellis tells me of being intimidated of the other inhabitants of his sleeping bag and talks of cannibalism. I much fear the horrors of our last days here. End quote. scary? Yeah. 
Exhausted, cold, and starving to death, they tried again and again to venture back out to find food. On one such attempt, one of the men, named Sergeant Fredericks, watched as the brave George Rice died of hypothermia, slowly descending into dementia before dying in his comrade's arms. Fredericks almost killed himself in the process of trying to ensure a decent burial for his friend. Now, unbeknownst to the men, Dolph Greeley's wife, Henrietta, was lobbying tirelessly to get the government to save her husband. When appealing to Congress didn't work, she went to the press and created a public outcry that pressured the government into sending another rescue mission. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself here to say it is unbelievable that the U.S. Army would send these men into the Arctic and then after two failed missions to, to resupply them, basically just be like, well... They're dead. Yeah, what else? Like, if they are not dead now, they'll be dead soon enough. Why are we going to spend money on, a, on an expedition to save them? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, so it, it really fell to Henrietta. A mission, a rescue mission was desperately needed. Things were getting much worse. Men were dying at a rate of nearly one per week. The crew learned that once a man started to become delusional, it meant an inevitable decline into death. So when a man started to rave, they sadly knew what was coming. Can you imagine the constant heartbreak that this was would cause? I mean, they were, at this point, friends and comrades. Mm-hmm. It's really just horrifying. They were also forced to execute one man who was stealing rations. The men started to accept the fact that they would all die. They started to prepare their wills. They left letters and diaries, hoping that they would someday be found. Greeley actually writes all of these just devastatingly sad letters to his wife, kind of remembering their happiest moments together and saying his goodbyes. In late June, a terrible storm collapsed their only remaining shelter. The men huddled together, almost totally exposed, on the ground. They were just waiting to die. In an incredible stroke of luck, (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding, that sounds too happy. In an incredible stroke of luck, it was just at that time that they were approached by a group of men. They were being rescued. Seven men were found alive, but one more died on board the ship. One more died on board the ship on the return trip. (laughs) It just sounds like a fun song. It was surreal. Had they not been rescued, they all would have been dead within hours. Now they were on a ship, wrapped in furs, with food so plentiful some of the men were moved almost to tears to see the ship's garbage thrown overboard. As Brainerd noted, that garbage would undoubtedly have kept the rest of their group alive long enough to be rescued. Yeah, there's these really devastating descriptions of, like, being on this ship, like, having been absolutely certain you're going to be dead within a couple of hours, and then all of a sudden... You're just not, you know, mm-hmm. and the the how bizarre it was to see them throwing garbage into the sea. Right. Like if thinking, they had just come like a week earlier, like yeah. so how many people could have been saved. Right. Exactly. And if they could have just been eating that ship's garbage, they would have been fine. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And seven of 25. They There was initially 25 men on the mission. Only seven were found. And then, of course, the one. And I, I should say also the one who died on the ship was actually that guy whose foot fell off from frostbite. He had stayed alive even That's after crazy. all of that, yeah. only to die on the ship on the, the way home. asked them to kill him yes. or whatever. Isn't that amazing? Yes. And sad. The rescuers had noticed something when they came into Greeley's last camp. There were dead bodies strewed all about. They were unburied. 
and they very obviously had strips of flesh that had been sliced off. These reports made it into the no these reports made it into American newspapers and very quickly it became the only thing that anybody wanted to talk about. Not their, you know, miraculous survival, not these scientific observations that they had worked so hard to to keep and to save. Um, it was this charge of cannibalism. And I mean, that's so unfair because what was their alternative? Mm-hmm. Right. They, they didn't have one. I mean, it's probably the only reason seven men survived. It haunted the men for the rest of their lives and it tainted their important scientific observations. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with Greeley's hard won scientific data. And he goes on later in his life to write memoirs about this. And he's um, he, he was really kind of heartbroken that this all seemed to be for nothing. But oddly enough, his observations are incredibly valuable today because they're giving us really key insight into the effects of climate change, which, by the way, are really bad. (laughs) Climate change is really bad. Whatever, social justice warrior. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. It's true. So very last thought. There is a Northwest Passage. And it has been navigated, and it is now fairly routinely navigated. Um, It is very complicated. It is not a straight. There is no thune or thule or whatever. Um, It's actually just kind of, there are a couple different ways you can do it, but it's, it's just navigating around like one million tiny islands in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. Like it's... Mm -hmm. There are ways that you can do it, but it's it's not like zoop, which is what they thought they were going to get, like a straight line. It's actually this kind of like. Why would they think it would be like that? Like That's what they that's like, what, they what are the odds, though? And what? what was their precedent for finding that they had? I mean, even the Spanish were like, we found this fast way to get to Asia, which Kinda. was extremely not fast. Right. And it was, like, every single time that they went down and tried to go around, what, the Cape of Good Hope? Is that what it's called? Like, every time that they went, is that what No, that's, your Cape of Good Hope is Africa. Oh, wait, what are we talking about? We're talking about, um, not Verrazano, um, Magellan went down around South America. Okay, what's that cope? Or what's that cape called? The tip of South America. (laughs) (laughs) Just the tip. (laughs) Oh my god. Cape Just Horn. Cape Horn. Cape Horn. I knew there was a cape. Cape yes. Horn. Yeah, it's not very small. It's not a very short trip at all. No, like, no. It's not like at a all. massive amount of sailing. Right. It's just like, that sailing is kind of faster than, than walking, water. you know, or whatever. Right. And you know, at this point land travel. That's what they were they were thinking about finding a way to sail, like a, a faster um a, a shortcut to sail rather than okay, let's land in say you know, Massachusetts, and then take a trip, like, walking across this continent. You know, sailing would be faster, and it is faster. You know what would have been even easier than all of these things? Just exploding a Panama Canal. That's exactly what I was just going to say. The Panama Canal actually solves this problem. Just blow that crap up and go. Although, (laughs) I I will say that the Northwest Passage, I think this, by the way, was first navigated in 1906 by a Norwegian guy. Um... But that Northwest Passage is still in use by, um, you know, Arctic shipping, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, m- minerals or Bjorn, whatever. Bjorgensen. Yes. No, uh, whatever, you know, that, that kind That's of terrible stuff. But it racist. is used. And I also found that there was um, at least, not that long ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a cruise ship 
that went on the Northwest Passage. Yes, please. Yeah. I would totally want to do that. I would too, except for the fact that, you know, it would... You might die. It would get frozen into the ice. And, I mean, at least right now, there are still periods of time where it's totally impassable because it freezes over. By global warming. However, yeah. And there's actually conversations now about how there are more Northwest Passages because things that have traditionally been frozen are no longer freezing over, um, which is bad. Because of coal. Nice, clean, burning coal. Yes. Clean, poor, clean coal. <laughs> Do you have anything um, you want to talk about? Why didn't they eat polar Was bears? that okay? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was... I mean, I literally made Elizabeth fall asleep. It is the perfect, it's the perfect, it's the perfect transition between spooky and cold weather episodes. That's true, because you will die in the cold weather. Right. And that's spooky. Yeah. (laughs) And eating people's spooky. Also, I'm going to link that that song, Frozen in Frobisher Bay, because it's really, really beautiful. Does anybody else ever think about, like, the... She like how I say things and she just completely ignores me. Do you? Do you have, she was like looking in my eyes. I was thinking. Like, do you ever think about? Do you ever think about like the actual material reality of eating a human flesh? Like I like yeah, all the time. like I try to like no I mean I just try to think like what would that be like because yeah. you knew the person it's not exactly. like it was some random you're not right. like oh I found this frozen foot meat it was like no you you knew. <laughs> You knew right. no, who the person I, was. It's it's horrifying. And you'd I mean, be it's like, truly horrifying you to think of. The people that you know, though, because you know where they've been. But at the same but, time, to me, what scares me is the knowledge that like it's this or nothing. Right. Like it's and they this were, or dead. They were all men. Were they like eating each other's like hairy butt cheeks and stuff? Like no, you know, I, I just don't know. What I think parts, of like you would, see but like it in, in the lives, that's where animals. they started. They started on the butt. You in, would think in Jamestown isn't that where they. Because it has it has the, fat pads of, and right, stuff like, like that makes sense. Part. Yeah, I mean, that's and it would be the most color. I mean, it's not really the meatiest; it's the, most, the fattiest, I guess. But, but it has like the, the most calories. I yeah. can't tell you exactly, but I think that the the bodies that they've um, that they've found from Jamestown, where they've proven cannibalism, I I want to say that it, it was on the lower parts of the body. The it, I don't know about the butt, but. Certainly the legs. Don't the quote me on that because I'm I might be wrong. Right, but I'm but. just I don't know. It's just I just the I just I am haunted by that. Me too. By the me too. That. That's why this is so scary to me. And I think part of it too is this like the the sheer hopelessness of it. You know, yeah. that's what really freaks me out. Is like this it's just it. Like it's you're just done. And it freaks me out that earth can be like that you know I, mm-hmm. and at the same time i kind of like that earth can be like that because it puts us in our place but you know it you puts just... Amer- uh, americans it does put americans yeah. in their place but it puts humans in their place like we think that we can do all of these things that we are you know the greatest species or whatever and the, there are times when earth is like nope, nope. right you you're no, you. like foxes are better at this shit than you are right. polar bears are well, better well that that does make me think of that one um mission to to find that hiker in Washington. Have you heard of this? I, I've heard of this because she so. well she went to college in Fredonia and there's a lot of people around here who went to Fredonia. Yeah, yeah. Um it's a SUNY school and she went to school there and so a lot of people who I know have said, Oh I, I went to school with Sam. Her name is Sam Sayers and she oh. went on a hike in Washington State where she lives. Yeah. And um she said she would be back by six and she was a very experienced hiker mm-hmm. and had done this for a very long time. Yeah. And 
um, the last time someone saw her was at lunchtime or something, mm-hmm. and then she was never seen again, and they have been searching for her for two months. Wow. And so now they, they've had lots of drone footage, so they upload that to YouTube so that people can search to see if they see anything. Because wow. the drone footage, I mean, it's it's not the kind of it's not the kind of terrain where you can just like walk around and be like, yeah. where is she? It's, yeah. it's very, Dense. very rocky. Lots yeah. of like, um, rocks that kind of are split in two where you could <laughs> fall into right. crevices and she was really small. So people are like, if she fell into like a crevice, I mean, we can't. Yeah. So, um, and they have never found her and they've been leaving food and drink mm-hmm. all over the place in hopes that she could find it or whatever. But it's just really scary because, you know, people are, a lot of people are thinking now, like, oh, maybe there was foul play. Maybe somebody abducted her mm-hmm. off the trail or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's possible. But it's also just that nature is so mighty that, yes. like, we literally just can't find her. Exactly. Even though we have all of this equipment, they have ground penetrating radar yeah. and they have, um, you know, heat mm-hmm. heat um, yeah, detecting yeah. sensors. Right. Like, And they have helicopters, drones, um, you know, thousands of people. We live in really scary climate times, and it scares the beans out of me. It scares the beans out of her. It does. I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning and laid there thinking about climate change (laughs) and how we're all going to die. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I couldn't sleep. I don't know. There have been so many weather anomalies in the last, like, 10 years or something. I was looking at some charts of this, and the the weather anomalies are just... It's outrageously bad. So... (laughs) (laughs) On that note... (laughs) We have a Patreon now, so go ahead and head over to our Patreon. You can just search us, Dig mm-hmm. History Podcasts, mm-hmm. um, at patreon.com, and you can contribute. We have um, the lowest tier, I think, is just a dollar mm-hmm. a month. If we, you know, if everyone who listened to us donated 50 cents a month or something, we right. would um, be just eternally grateful. Yeah, really. I mean, and this is, I, we promise you that this money is not going to like our. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh beer beer budget beer or something. Fun. Our but wine fund. It's um it it really is stuff that we just need, you know, like you know, web hosting and you know, some of the services that we use for our social media programs and, and it's stuff that we we are paying for right now totally out of pocket. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Pinterest, on Instagram. Um, please join our Facebook group, which is Dig. What is it? Dig, Dig History, History Pod, Pod Squad, um, which is really really fun, and we have lots of debates like who is the worst president of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no comment here, but um, it's it's really <laughs> fun, and I really enjoy it. I don't know about you guys, but um, I, I I always want more people to join it. Mostly, so we can talk. I enjoy it for the memes. Yes, good memes because they're memes. fun. Yes, and <laughs> if you have any um, anything to share with us or thoughts about an episode or thoughts about maybe a future episode, um, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We really love hearing from you. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Now I'm going to... Bjarni. I'm going to do my best here. Bjarni Herjolfsson. No, it's probably Herr Jolfsson. Herr Jolfsson? Bjarni. Bjarni Herr Jolfsson. I'm almost positive. It's, I think you're it's right. like Bjorn, but it's Bjarni. And right. it's Herr Jolfsson. Like the. Herr Jolfsson. Bjarni Herr Jolfsson. I like it. Okay. Bjarni Herr Jolfsson. <laughs> 
Oh my god. Sorry, it's children. The, it's the Yolf. <laughs> Yolf. Okay. okay. Called Coracles and Karaz. I guess. I don't know. Kuras, maybe? Coracles and Karachs. Coracles and She's like, she wasn't even paying attention. Okay. Um, he also described something that became called the Thule. And now I'm going to say Thule, but it might be Thule. I don't know. I have never heard anyone a, use the word. It's like those racks you put on your car. And I think they call them Thule. Thule. It's a, it's kind of it's a kind really? of bike rack that you put on your car. And it's the bike called... rack of Pythias. <laughs> bike rack of Pythias. Um, I'm gonna call it Thule. Okay. okay. I mean, write your angry letters to me later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> We've been petitioning for permission. Just a lot of petitioning. <laughs>